This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Stephen Erlanger is the chief diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. There are few people anywhere in the world who know more about relationships between nations, what actually happens when leaders get in the room to talk about challenges and try to solve them, who the personalities are, and how that lends itself to conversations about economic challenges or war and peace. As a quick reminder, this conversation, like all of our conversations, was taped 100% live. Anyone who wants to can join to ask a question. We welcome voices from across the political spectrum. The one rule is to keep it civil. For more on how to join us, past episodes, or to sign up for our best of newsletter, please visit our website, pm101.live. Our next episode this Wednesday will feature Jackie Heinrich, the first time we've ever hosted a Fox News reporter. Turning back to today's conversation, though, Stephen spent a lot of time in Russia in the late 1980s and also in the early 1990s. He was there right as the Soviet Union was coming apart. Right now, Russia has more than 100,000 troops stationed along the borders of Ukraine, raising serious concerns about an invasion there. But before we got into that, we zoomed out and started by taking things back 30 years, asking Stephen what it felt like in the early 90s right after the wall fell how Russia felt at that point about its own relationship with Europe, how things could play out, and how history has stacked up to those expectations. Our co-founder, John Gunnison, did a great job filling in for Justin during the interview. Let's roll the tape. How did they think in 30 years they were going to fit into the European picture? Did they expect at this point we would still be in a adversary relationship between NATO and Moscow. It's always been a tension in Russian culture. How much was the great Russia, you know, which is 11 time zones, blah, blah, blah. How much of it was an Asian country, a Eurasian country, and how much of it was a European country? Peter the Great obviously wanted to make it a European country. St. Petersburg is like this fantastic vision of a European city built in the freezing cold um, of the North and built on the bones of many peasants who filled in the swamps and so on. So, I mean, there was always a big part of Russia that wanted to be European, that, that, you know, did beautiful music and wrote great literature. Um, And there was always a part of Russia that said, you know, we're different. We're the third Rome. We're Orthodox. Um, we never had the Renaissance um, and that we are an empire. Um, and Europe was no longer a place for empires. So certainly in Moscow, um, there was a very strong feeling that this was Russia's chance. And in fact, Europe seemed open. Um, Washington seemed open. Um, but In the end, you could even argue the chaos of an economy that was being forced to switch from strange collectivism to what people called savage capitalism created too much pressure, really, um, and, and a lot of internal dissent. I mean, it's very easy to blame the West. I think Putin likes to do this for taking advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the weakness of um, Russia at the time. And to some degree, he's right, but most of Russia's problems were became, came out of internal mistakes, internal culture, um, and um, it's hard to blame all that on 
somebody outside. The different countries inside of NATO and inside of the EU have had different approaches to Moscow. You wrote an article recently about President Biden and the White House's attempts to try to form a real consensus inside of NATO about Russia amidst this particular crisis. In your estimation, how successful have they been? How close is NATO today to a consensus? I think it's really important to make a distinction between NATO and the European Union in terms of its stances at the moment, because NATO is interested in reassuring NATO members. The EU, that's the economic power. What is the power of deterrence? If you're going to deter Putin, it's got to be the threat of economic sanctions. It's not NATO moving troops around in inside NATO. It's how much will European countries be willing to suffer themselves by applying serious punishing sanctions on Russia. And that's what Putin has to really think about. So NATO's pretty solid. They've rejected Putin's suggestion that NATO commit suicide. Um, they've rejected the suggestion that NATO go back on its founding treaty in 1949, I think, which was the open door is a big part of that founding treaty. And certainly they've rejected the idea of moving back to 1997 and pulling NATO forces out of countries bordering Russia, like Poland and the Baltics. They were only put there after 2014, when Russia went into Ukraine in the first place and annexed Crimea. So to some degree, this is a response to earlier Russian uh, aggression, Russia breaking its own promises, breaking the, help, breaking the Helsinki Accord, the sort of Budapest memorandum, et cetera, et cetera. The EU is 27 countries, different countries will be hit differently by sanctions. So what the EU has tried to do is work out a kind of a base case for sanctions. And then depending on what Russia actually does, they can move up or down in terms of the weight of, of those sanctions. But to the point of your question, I think um, the Biden administration has done a, a very good job in um, making it clear to allies that the United States is with them, that this is important, that it's not going to bow to Russian hostage-taking your mention of two things, number one, the open door policy of NATO, and number two, the incomplete overlap of the EU and NATO's institutions, that reminds me of something that's related to all of this. Uh, this current crisis has reminded countries across the continent of the importance of defense cooperation. And we've seen some polling in neutral EU member states like Sweden and Finland that suggests that there is an increasingly positive attitude towards NATO. These countries have never been part of NATO, but like Ukraine, the crisis is pushing them towards NATO. Are you seeing these kinds of attitudes reflected in the leadership circles? Do you believe that there's a possibility that against the wishes of Putin, apparently, this crisis could lead to further strengthening of NATO or even expansion of NATO? The more Putin frightens countries, the more 
they want to go back to nurse. And the most effective nurse is NATO because the Article 5, nobody wants to test it. Certainly Russia doesn't want to test it. So you have um, countries like Finland, which have a, you know, its own long history with Russia. The Finns fought off the Russians in a war. Now, I don't think Sweden's terribly interested in joining NATO, but as, as you say, um, it very much wants the option, and Finland insists on the option. I mean, they're very strongly opposed to shutting the possibility of joining NATO. Both countries um, cooperate with NATO. The Swedes have had their own trouble in the past with Russian submarines. So, I mean, it's a very active debate right now. I mean, scaring your neighbors has a benefit, perhaps, but the problem is you can scare them into joining an alliance you don't want them to join. So uh, this is part of what Putin has to consider, I think. You mentioned, I think, the key word in all of this, which is deterrence. The entire purpose of the new developing NATO strategy towards this crisis is to prevent or discourage Russia from escalating any further. Have you found, based on your analysis and assessment of the Russian leadership, that there has been a discouraging or deterrent factor here? Do you think that Russia are backing off of some of the more aggressive possibilities? Well, I think they're thinking about it. Um, I think Putin is... You know, we exaggerate how perhaps how smart he is, but tactically, he's quite good. He's looking for weaknesses. I think he's doing this now because he sensed a period of time in the West that was weaker than other times. But um, I do think there is a consideration going on, and part of the advantage of the EU and the West being a little bit careful about what economic penalties will be put on Russia is it's important to keep him guessing too, much as he's keeping us guessing. In a way, what you have is two things going on. Of course, you have an effort to um, reassure the alliance and try to reassure Ukraine a bit, but to do so in a way that deters Russia rather than provokes Russia. Ukraine, Vladimir Putin breaking his silence tonight, accusing the U.S. and NATO of ignoring Russia's latest security concerns, criticizing NATO's presence in Eastern Europe and saying, quote, they played us. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also presented unity, but as the president himself acknowledged yesterday, the transatlantic alliance is not unified over how to punish Russia. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with German Foreign Minister Annalena Betterbach and French and British diplomats to try and present a united front. That unity uh, gives us strength. A strength, I might add, that Russia does not and cannot match. Other European countries are worried about U.S. sanctions because they have their own business ties to Russia. The EU is Russia's largest trading partner. In countries along Russia's border, including Finland, Lithuania, and Estonia, Russian goods make up about a third of imports. In contrast, Russia is the United States' 26th largest trading partner. We've just had a transition in the leadership of the largest EU economy, the leader of the European continent in many ways, which is Germany. 
we now, for the first time since 2005, have a new German chancellor. Do you think that this is a significant factor in the timing of the new Russian troop buildup? To be honest, I do. Um, partly because, you know, Angela Merkel was quite experienced, but she spoke Russian and he speaks German. And she came from the East. So there was this kind of, there was someone he could talk to and someone who did actually kind of represent a kind of European consensus. Um, and and I think, you know, Europe's missing that. There's also, you know, Joe Biden, who is old and who many people worry is already a lame duck, who may lose the midterms, who may not run again. People worry about Trump coming back. Um, I think, you know, Putin looks at the United States and sees Biden on the one hand as someone he can talk to. But I do wonder at their first summit meeting in Geneva in June, whether Putin heard something that made him press ahead. It's very hard to know. And then, of course, you have Macron in France, who's running for for um, re-election. You have a Europe whose economy has been hit hard by COVID. And you have huge rise in gas prices. And gas is Europe's big vulnerability. A rise in, in prices, you know, a little bit engineered by Russia, it's true, but mostly not. So it seemed like, you know, one of those moments where if he's going to do something, um, maybe this was a to try. I want to follow up on a very interesting detail that you teased there, which is the possibility that at that Geneva summit, Putin might have heard something from Biden that encouraged him to take a more aggressive posture. What do you imagine that that might be? Well, it's completely speculative. I, I just think um, it's very easy to misread people. I mean, I was thinking of when Khrushchev met the young President Kennedy in Vienna in 1961. That's, you know, I'm not even old enough for that. But it's clear he thought John Kennedy was a callow youth, and he pushed ahead, and he underestimated him. Um, and it may be that Putin talked to Biden and Biden talked about China and, you know, wanting to move to pivot to Asia. And um, it could be that Putin said, well, you know, if he wants, maybe he'll pay less attention to Russia or maybe to make this easier, this is time to have a serious negotiation on the restructuring of European security because we have been ignored too long. That might be an interesting place for us to introduce Emmanuel Macron into the discussion because we're talking about the re-engineering or the reorganization of the European defense system. And this is something that President Macron has taken on as a personal ambition since he came into office in 2017. So looking at the way that Macron has approached this crisis, is it telling us anything more about his vision for the future of European defense? Um, I don't think it tells us a lot more, but it's given him a chance to try to push ahead with it. His argument in general is that the U.S. is not the hyperpower of the world anymore. Other powers are rising. Uh, the U.S. has 
its rivalry in the future seems to be China. China is the future problem. Europe is doing okay. Russia is shrinking in size. Um, so Europe should do more to be able to defend itself because the Americans may not be there. I mean, if Trump comes back, Trump wasn't very interested. Um, so, you know, Europe should be able to at least define its own interests and do more to defend its own interests. And, you know, Macron even seemed a bit grumpy when Biden won, won the election, right? Because um, Trump made his message easier. Now, this crisis, I mean, every French leader I remember during the Georgia crisis in 2008, Sarkozy went running off to Moscow to try to settle it. Um, in 2014, in Crimea, the so-called Normandy format happened at the D-Day ceremony because Barack Obama wasn't really interested in Ukraine, basically said to the French, the Germans, you deal with it. It's Europe. You do it. Um, and maybe that was a big mistake. But the Normandy format, which includes Russia and Ukraine, um, does give Emmanuel Macron a perfectly legitimate platform to be talking to the Russians and to Vladimir Putin about ways to de-escalate the problem. I have no trouble with personally with Macron or Schultz or Boris Johnson flying off to talk to Putin. The more they're talking, the less likely war is, as long as they're saying sensible things. And so far, I think they're saying sensible things. There were flight maps that showed that arms shipments, I believe in the UK, that were heading to Ukraine, were consciously avoiding German airspace. They were flying over the North and Baltic Seas rather than crossing over the German territory. That in order to move arms from the UK or further west into Ukraine, they could not fly over Germany. Is that accurate? Is that a misreading of what was happening? I think the British just didn't want to raise the question. It was easier not to raise the question. Um, what the answer would have been, I don't know. The Germans have been very, very strict about not providing arms to Ukraine, not providing defensive arms to Ukraine. And in fact, they were criticized because East German howitzers that they gave to Estonia, they refused to let Estonia send to Ukraine. Um, now, that I think is kind of nuts, but that's that was the German position, which is we are not an arms provider to these kind of con conflictual countries. Um, now, the Germans have sold submarines to Israel. The Germans sell different weapons to lots of places. So there's a kind of, I think, a bit of hypocrisy there, to be honest. A series of gas pipelines running between Russia and Germany is at the centre of an international dispute. It's called Nord Stream 2, and as its construction nears completion, there's mounting pressure to put a stop, to put a stop, to put a stop to this controversial project. Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline from Russia's west coast, covering a distance of more than 1,230 kilometres, it transports gas through the Baltic Sea to Germany. The pipeline runs just like the first Nord Stream pipeline 
exclusively over international waters, so it doesn't belong to any of the surrounding sovereign countries. Nord Stream 2 can allow the transport of up to an extra 55 billion cubic meters of gas every year. Every year. One aspect of Germany's response to current strategy that's had so much scrutiny, Stephen, is this issue of Nord Stream 2, the pipeline across the yes. Baltic Sea. It's taken on this huge symbolic uh, image in the context of this discussion. How important do you think that Nord Stream 2 actually is? Do you think that it's a molehill or a mountain? Well, I think in the current context, it's important leverage. It's $11 billion that have been invested into this second pair of pipelines. Everybody forgets Nord Stream 1 is happily working, right? I mean, nobody argued about Nord Stream 1. Part of this started with Republicans in the Senate and started with Trump, who Trump insisted that Germany was completely a slave to Russia because of energy, if you remember. And Trump, like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and also including Senator Shaheen, I mean, not all Republicans, you know, felt Nord Stream 2 simply was, as they put it, a Russian geopolitical project, not just a business project. Um, And, you know, it was an effort to cut out Ukraine. Now, everyone forgets that Russia has agreed that Ukraine will get all its rent that it gets now through 2024, regardless of what happens. But um, there is no question that it is a more modern, direct line. Um, And, you know, the Ukrainian, the old Ukrainian lines are a bit leaky. Now, the threat is the Russians can turn off the gas, right? Now, to me, the Russians have never really turned off the gas to Germany. Um, There were a couple moments during an early Ukraine thing where they did and they got clobbered. But Gazprom believes, I mean, it's it's an interdependency. Russia needs the money, right? And Europe needs the gas. And 40% of European gas comes from Russia. And 55% of German gas comes from Russia. So they're going to be paying Russia one way or another whether it comes through Nord Stream 2, Nord Stream 1, Ukraine, Poland, whether they buy LNG from um, from Gazprom. Now, one could very much argue the Germans have been much too complacent about finding other sources of gas, right? um, whether it's from the Middle East or Azerbaijan. Um, and, you know, to simply argue that, well, eventually the wind and the sun will take care of the problem. Well, that's not going to be true for quite a long time to come. So there is a vulnerability, but I don't think Nord Stream 2 by itself really matters so much since no money is coming into the Kremlin from it anyway. But it is a powerful symbol, and it's a symbol of German commitment to possible sanctions. So in that sense, I think it actually matters. I don't think it makes Germany dependent on Russia. The last question that I want to ask you, Stephen, has to do with another element of a potential crisis that I think personally is under-discussed, and that's a possibility of a new refugee migration surge out of Ukraine if there's further escalation. 
This is a country of 44 million people, and it's on the border of four EU member states. We saw in 2015 and afterwards how migration could disrupt domestic politics inside of the European Union. Do we think that Europe is preparing for this possibility? I don't think anybody's ready for anything, to be honest. But I think you're right to point to the danger of, well, the danger, the chance of a big migration flow, particularly if there's a big war inside Ukraine, particularly into Poland. People are prepared to help. I'm not sure how many people will end up staying. Again, so much depends on what Vivi Putin in the end decides to do. And I'm certainly not going to pretend that I know what that is. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. We've really benefited from having your analysis. Oh, (laughs) thank you very much. We're going to go next to Dr. Terry Gibbons for the next question. My question comes back to politics. We've talked a bit about the politics in the U.S. and a little bit about the politics in Germany, you know, the impact of the immigration flows, as we talked about. But I'm wondering what this tension is going, how it's going to impact governments. You know, Macron, for example, you know, if he shows he's tough and is sending troops, is that going to help him in the upcoming election, especially given the challenge from the Zamor and, and Le Pen and all of that? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The French case is really kind of weird and special because, you know, the French debate is really pretty shocking if you listen to it. Um, The arguments on the far right, it's true a little bit in America on the deep right, um, there's this kind of weird fascination with Vladimir Putin, um, with his version of Christian identity politics, right? And um, one sees it a bit in Hungary, one sees it on the far right inside Europe, and one one hears it. It's always been there in France a bit, but you know you hear it more with Zamor and so on. And and there is this kind of patronization of um, of a um, Ukraine, right? You, you know that they're corrupt and it's not a very good democracy, and blah 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 blah. So. You know, that is an issue. I think Macron probably wouldn't react very differently if he weren't running for election, to be honest. He's been trying to have his own conversations with Putin for quite a long time. Um, He's pushed the EU into wanting more direct relationships with Russia. Nobody's really followed him out that door, by the way. Um, And, you know, in Germany, it's almost also very interesting in a different way. You know, the ones who say, well, you know, Russia has been put upon and it's our neighbor and, you know, it's a great country. And they're really European and and we do a lot of trade with them and they're very important and the Americans don't quite understand Russia, but we do. Now, the difference is in Germany now, of course, you have an unusual coalition, which is a three-party coalition. The Greens and the Free Democrats, you know, Lintner, who's the head of the party, was very touched by Navalny and by repression inside Russia. The Greens are very anti-Russian for dependency reasons, climate reasons, human rights reasons. So this is something the Social Democrats have to actually pay attention to. We will go over to Michael next. 
already in 2008, uh, NATO and George Bush in particular, in fact, made the declaration uh, in uh, Bucharest that uh, Ukraine would become, along with Georgia, a member of NATO. I found that rather puzzling. Why was the U.S. insistent on Ukraine joining NATO? Again, this also over the objections of the French and the Germans at the time. Uh, nonetheless, Bush compromised with them only by saying, we won't give a date for Ukraine to join NATO. We will simply uh, leave that out of the declaration. So my question is, if, if Stephen or someone else can explain that to me, how it is that the United States was insisting that Ukraine would join NATO before the Ukrainians desired it into polls. Perhaps Polky's wrong on the poll in 2013. Now, I was in Bucharest in 2008, um, and Putin broke into the um, NATO dinner, and he laid down his red lines. He said, Ukraine, Georgia, no. And four months after Bucharest in 2008, they went into Georgia, or they created this problem inside Georgia. And that's actually worked out pretty well for the Russians because, you know, Georgia's still pretty messy and it's not ready to join NATO and nobody's asking for it to join NATO and so on. Now, Ukraine is a little more complicated because, as you know, one of the things that Putin is most terrified of is popular revolt, and that's the Orange Revolution. The Orange Revolution was Ukraine. There was a westernizing push in Ukraine through the Orange Revolution, which got in some ways put down. Um, and under um, Yanukovych, Yanukovych said Ukraine would be neutral and did not want to join NATO. And the polls reflected that. Um, but what happened then in 2014 the Russian engagement and involvement and annexation of Crimea created more of a sense of Ukrainian patriotism and anxiety. And Zelensky now, you know, says I should join NATO. Bush insisted on this promise that Georgia and Ukraine would eventually join NATO without being very specific. And this is a door that Vladimir Putin has been trying to shut ever since 2008. We are going to go next to Pyotr. Pyotr, over to you, sir. My question is, how can we bring Russia more on side? How can we, not just for this conflict, but more in longer term, how can we bring Russia more on side to, uh, to support, you know, democracy, human rights, and everything that I think the West is a good force for the, in the world? Thank you. How do we attract Russia? I think, you know, first of all, we have to listen to them. We have to take them seriously. They do have security concerns. They are concerned about air defense missile systems bordering Russia. Now, as much as we say, oh, no, no, they're not aimed at Russia. They're aimed at Iran. They're aimed at anything but Russia. We can prove it to you. They don't believe it. As much as we can reassure them about negotiating, you know, we have all these nuclear gravity bombs sitting in Europe, do we need them? Is this something we can talk about? Um, can we put limits on maneuvers of uh, troop forces close to um, to the Russian border? The problem is what Russia says it wants, NATO and the West cannot give them. And what NATO and the West are offering Russia, right now it's not that important. Russia. So um, that's the problem. But 
I think, you know, Putin isn't going to last forever either. As I said, he's 69. We don't know what takes his place. In the old days, when I first went to the Soviet Union, there was a Politburo. There was a collective leadership. There were people who were leading their communist parties from different parts of the Soviet Union. But now there is no Politburo. There's just Putin. There, I mean, after Stalin, the Soviet system worked to create a more collective leadership. That's gone now. And now it is the, it's the decision of the Vojd, of the leader. And the people around the Vojd, so far as we know, are security types. So they see the world in a very different way. So this is part of the uncertainty, I have to say. Over to you, Margarita. From an Italian point of view, it's actually kind of good to see European countries stepping in and trying to find a mediation because we have more interests in a peaceful situation, more direct interests. Apart from energy, we have great economical connections. We have uh, great cultural connections with Russia. And I'm not afraid of saying that because I come from one of the countries that is most pro-Russian in the Western world, which is Italy. If we have to go and ask our population of any kind of political uh, affiliation, they would all be pretty much pro-Russia. And uh, in this moment especially, it would create quite a problem to have uh, an external policy defined vis-à-vis uh, the United States of America. What do the Americans think of the Europeans stepping up the diplomatic game and talking directly with Russia about Ukraine? It's a good question. And of course, Europe does have, you know, it does have a different relationship to Russia than the United States does. There's no question. At the same time, Putin wants to talk to Biden. He doesn't really want to talk to Macron and Draghi and Schultz. I mean, he will if he can divide Europeans. Um, I think the Americans don't mind anyone talking to Putin. It's perfectly within everyone's right to do so. And as I said, Macron has perfect legitimacy to do so based on Normandy and Minsk. It's just making sure everyone's on the same page in terms of what Putin hears. It's it's really trying to unify the message. I mean, I don't think the Americans have any problem with you know, getting Putin into negotiations of any kind, as long as it keeps him from moving big into Ukraine. And I don't think any of these European leaders has the weight or the power to actually give anything away that's very serious to Vladimir Putin. So I think it's really okay. The Americans are actually encouraging the Europeans to do more in their own defense, They just want to make sure it's compatible with NATO. And frankly, most European members of NATO believe the same thing. And of course, members of NATO and the European Union, like the Baltic states and Poland and Slovakia and the Czech Republic, they're more worried about Russia for obvious reasons than Italy is. And they have votes too. So um, I don't think we're to the... The U.S. is too worried about Europe. I think it's much more worried about what happens um, in terms of sanction solidarity. They're not worried about diplomacy. 
That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Stephen, to the New York Times, and to you for being here. Our next episode coming out this Wednesday will feature Jackie Heinrich from Fox News, the first time we've ever hosted a Fox News reporter. As a quick reminder, all of our conversations are taped 100% live. Anyone who wants to can join to ask a question. We welcome voices from across the world and the political spectrum. The one rule is to keep it civil. For more information on how to join us, our live schedule, past episodes, and a chance to sign up for our very illustrious newsletter, which will deliver our best of to your inbox twice per month, please visit our website, pm101.live. If you like what you hear, please also take a moment to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using. Leave us a review and a rating. It takes two seconds. It's a huge help to us as our community grows. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team. Thank you for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.